Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We're very excited to finally sit down with our guest and frequent friend of the podcast, Dr. Lillian Cow, for a full-length interview. Dr. Cow is a professor of surgery and division chief of acute care surgery at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School in Houston. She was president of the Association of Academic Surgery. She sits on multiple editorial boards, including the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. She has over 100 publications and more than 20 book chapters to her name. She is the editor of Pretest Surgery, which many of us use as medical students and continues to have national grant funded research. And the best part and last part of her CV is her appearance on our podcast. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cal. Thank you for having me again. For today, we're going to kind of look at your involvement in the Schwartz Principles of Surgery. The newest edition will be released this year, and you are one of the editors, the first woman to edit a major surgical textbook. Congratulations on this. Thank you so much. How did the opportunity arise for your involvement with Schwartz? Dr. Brunicardi, who used to be the chair of surgery at uh, Baylor College of Medicine, who is now chair at uh, University of Toledo, asked me at one of the American College of Surgeons meetings if I would uh, join the editorial board. And Dr. Brunicardi and I know each other because he is also a past president of the Association for Academic Surgery. The AAS has really been a great source of networking and has provided numerous opportunities, not just through the association itself, but through the connections that I've made through it. So that's how that came about. Backing up a little bit, what was your experience prior to this in, obviously we talked about that you've had many many editorial roles for journals, but for a textbook of this caliber? Yeah, I've been, I've participated mostly as an author on a lot of uh, textbooks. I actually had previously been asked to write a chapter for this edition of Schwartz. So um, I co-authored a chapter on web-based education, I believe. So I was already involved in the textbook, but I hadn't been an editor except for smaller books. So Herb Chen and I co-edited a series of books on success in academic surgery. And there are probably about 12 different books within that series right now. We're coming out with one on uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, and also one on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Those are coming out in the next year or two. And then I had, as you mentioned, been a editor on the pretest surgery book, and the new edition is coming out later this year as well. But this is my first uh, opportunity as a co-editor or associate editor on a large major textbook. I also was a co-editor on the uh, book that Justin Dimmick, Chris Sonnenday, and Gib Upchurch have published on sen- clinical scenarios in surgery. So that edition, the second edition came out recently. The clinical scenarios in surgery, I just have to, I have personal affection for that book. It has really become one of the primary oral board study guides. So where Schwartz is kind of our primary you know, general surgery text, when it comes down to board studying, I think clinical scenarios is just perfect for the boards. Yeah, I've been very lucky in that, uh, you know, people have started wonderful traditions and allowed me to join in after they've been successful. So I can take no credit for any of that. I'm, uh, again, Justin Dimmick is a past president of AAS. And so we've worked together a lot 
through the AAS and over time. So certainly it's been a privilege to know all the movers and shakers. And so it provides, as I said before, a lot of opportunities. It's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> Can you just give us a little insight into what it goes, what what it takes to make a textbook like Schwartz, like as far as the planning, the timeline and getting these chapters done? I mean, that, that's quite an undertaking. Yeah, it takes years. Uh, <laughs> I actually only came in near the end of this version of Schwartz, but um, having been involved again with clinical scenarios, uh, you look at every chapter. Sometimes you ask, depending on the philosophy of the chief editor, uh, you may ask some of the same authors. Some books prefer to have a different author each time. Some books require that a certain percentage of the chapter is updated. So if you have the same author, that the author has to change the content or update it. You know, let's say 20% of the content needs to change. It often requires, first, you have to get the authors on board. Uh, then you have to give them a timeline, and I guarantee you that uh, a very small percentage come in on time. <laughs> and then you have to pretty much hound the authors until they turn in the chapter. Uh, and then there's editing and ensuring that there's uh, no major errors. I know that Dr. Brunicardi, who uh, edits Schwartz as a main editor, really spent a lot of time in terms of editing and making sure that everything was uh, correct. And uh, so I assisted with reading all the chapters and it's impressive how much work has gone into each edition. And then Dr. Uh, Brunicardi was nice enough to ask me to write a second forward. So Dr. Schwartz wrote the first forward and I wrote the second one in this book. I have a, a personal question as I've written a, a few chapters in smaller uh, texts about um, as far as self-plagiarism. right? having the same, having the same words. Yes, yeah. because they told I, us that we couldn't, even on Dr. I was writing with Dr. Steele, and it was for the same book, or no, I'm sorry, it was a different book, but Dr. Steele had written a chapter in a different, you know, journal or whatever it was, and we couldn't use any of the same language in the new journal or textbook. How do you guys go about dealing with plagiarism? And do you guys put this through a computer system? And then and what, are, what are your thoughts on self-plagiarism? Yeah, I think that's very tricky. I have not been involved with Schwartz long enough to know exactly how they check for self-plagiarism. You know, some books, uh, for example, uh, clinical scenarios in surgery, especially if you have the same author or even a different author, we still included the old authors or some chapters will acknowledge the old authors. So I think it's a little easier if it's the same book. I think you do have to be wary when you start writing on the same topic over and over again for different books. And I do not know what most book companies do as far or publishing companies do as far as checking for self-plagiarism. I okay. have not known of any scenarios where I've been told, hey, you're, the chapter that you're editing is you know, X percent similar to a prior chapter. I do okay. think it's incumbent on the authors to self-regulate to make sure that they're not uh, replicating their own work too much or if they do like replicate a particular table or figure that they credit it because it actually is published elsewhere. Not just Schwartz, but you talked about all of these other publications um, and textbooks that you've been working on. How do you balance this with your day job, which is operating and <laughs> you know, teaching residents and everything? That can be challenging. Um, you know, I think that it's 
probably fairly common for senior authors to ask junior residents, fellows, and faculty to write book chapters with them. It happens at the chapter on web-based education in this book I wrote with um, Dr. Zennelman from Hopkins. Actually, I think he's now chair somewhere. So I actually did write that chapter. However, many times I don't agree to write a chapter unless I have a co-author just because of the amount of work and balancing uh, and not compromising my day job. As far as editing, it's there's a lot of assistance that occurs from the publishing company. So it's very important to have good assistance from the publishers. So in this case, for Schwartz, it was McGraw-Hill and having people who uh, keep track of uh, the chapters coming in for you, uh, sending the emails to the authors, following up on the book chapters. So you're not the one also doing the secretarial type work. As far as the editing, you know, it, it, it's actually very interesting. I learned a lot while re- reading some of the chapters. Uh, um, Dr. Bruna Cardi did a great job of incorporating modern topics into this uh, edition of Schwartz. So I, for example, I helped to edit the first couple chapters and the first chapters on leadership. So it, it was actually a great chapter. This is a really dense textbook and often residents don't, well, we say we don't have the time, but uh, maybe don't dedicate the time or have the energy at least to sit there and study out of a textbook with multiple chapters as we used to when we were going through school. But there is something to say of the significance of maintaining textbooks like this rather than relying solely upon the internet resources that are now out there. So I was wondering from your perspective, why do you think it is important to keep up with these uh, sort of seminal principles of surgery textbooks, uh, especially in this new generation where learning styles and educational resources are expanding? That's a great question. That's actually what I wrote my foreword about, uh, because this is actually the 50th birthday of Schwartz's textbook. And it is true that uh, most people have smartphones and and they have computers and they have easy access to information up to date or uh, any other online repository of information. So uh, really, that's the question I asked in the foreword. Do we even need textbooks anymore? Uh, And there are a couple answers to that. One is I think that um, we have to remember that the U.S. is actually not the only user or buyer of uh, the Schwartz and other major surgical textbooks that um, in global surgery or in other countries, people still use textbooks. And uh, that may be a way that people get their information still. Secondly, I think that uh, we know that there is not one size that fits all. So learners uh, tend to absorb information in different ways. You know, some people, for example, sometimes when I'm reviewing an article or a grant, I have to print it out so that I can write on it and I can mark it up and I can carry it around with me. And uh, even though I could easily look at it on a computer screen. So I do think people interact with information in different ways and they have different ways of learning. Uh, So while some people may never want to own a textbook, other people may only learn with books or having something in their hands. And then third, I think it's just nice to have a go-to reliable reference. And sometimes you don't need to know everything there is to know about a certain problem. Maybe you just want to know one thing. So having a book with a table of contents or an index. And what if your computer's down? uh, You're in a hurricane. We had a hurricane in 
Houston two years ago, and my colleague, who's a colorectal surgeon, had to do a craniotomy uh, over at uh, the county hospital where there were no neurosurgeons because they were stranded there in the middle of the hurricane. So you never know where you're going to (laughs) be and what information you're going to need. Luckily, the internet still worked, and he watched a YouTube video. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you just don't know, right? You don't uh, you don't know if your computer is going to be working at a critical moment. So I think it's nice to have something at your fingertips that you can look at. So I think there are there's still a role for a textbook for textbooks, but I do think it's complementary. It's no longer the sole source of information. And I think that um, the editors of Schwartz and of other major textbooks are well aware of that. So if you go to Access Surgery, for example, there are all kinds of books on there. There's video content on there. Dr. Bruna Cardi and the other editors have created a, you know, a book that goes with Schwartz that asks questions. So there are different ways to interact with the same material. One question I have is what sets apart people who write chapters for you, the ones that do a great job versus the ones that need some work, what, what, the ones that do great work, what is it about their chapters and, and how they go about it that makes it a great chapter? That's a good question. Well, number one, finishing it on time, <laughs> because uh, both as a person who hounds other people for their book chapters and one who has been hounded when I've been late, <laughs> it is not anything that reduces the the um, number of emails that you get per day is amazing. So uh, being timely, I think someone who has given it considerable thought, I think the writing is the easier part. It's uh, I think that someone who devotes the time up front to thinking, you know, about what is the new content, not just saying, okay, well, we need to change 20% of the chapter to update it. So someone who has a clear idea of what has changed and what needs to be updated. So that's if you're updating a prior chapter. As far as for a new chapter, I would just say that someone who um, needs minimal grammatical editing, I'm really not that picky. (laughs) Um, And someone who obviously um, has a good grasp of the important points uh, and someone who is a reasonable writer who doesn't need a lot of editing as far as their writing goes. Um, But otherwise, I think that book chapters are a great way for residents, fellows, and junior faculty to learn how to write because it is usually knowledge that is pretty well established or if there's controversy, you know, you just state that in the chapter. So I, I think that it's a great way to hone one's writing skills. So there's more than one textbook that even when you start residency, people say there are, you know, three options and you can choose which one best suits you. But we often get a lot of listeners who send us emails and ask us, you know, what resources are we using? What do we recommend? And even again, when you start residency, you ask your co-residents and everyone's using something different. So what do you think about how we should be addressing this and consolidating the information within our field of general surgery so that residents, fellows, people aren't scrambling to figure out what resource is the best to use? Another great question. I think that uh, SCORE was an attempt when it first came out to try to put all the resources in the same place. And um, I don't know if your programs use SCORE. My The program that I'm at no longer uses it. Um, and that was a decision that was not from me. But I recall that when I first started using SCORE, that the nice thing was that you had multiple references. 
But then the challenge was that if you have three different sources for a chapter on the same topic, most residents only have time to read one, let alone three on the same topic. And what if they're not exactly similar? So I, I think that that is one of the challenges of having so much information available at our fingertips nowadays is that it can become challenging to know what source to use. I usually would counsel my residents just to find what works for them. Again, I think everyone's different. So as someone who's looked at all three major textbooks, so when I was first working on pretest surgery and writing questions, I used all three textbooks to write the questions, to revise the questions. And I found that, you know, the sometimes one book was better than another for uh, certain topics. Um, it wasn't always, there was no consistent pattern. They were all in general excellent. So it's really just which textbook you find easiest to read. I do think it's nice to stick to one main textbook, but I think that uh, sources like UpToDate or I don't know if I need to have a disclosure. I am an editor also for UpToDate for the small bowel section. So I'm more familiar with it. I'm not necessarily endorsing it as the only product, but or Access Surgery, which is the company that makes the Schwartz, that publishes the Schwartz textbook. I think some of these online sites are nice uh, ways to um, find one source of information. But again, I think no matter what you read, you always have to have a a small uh, grain of skepticism in terms of data gets updated all the time. You always need to check what the source is and make sure that, um, you know, you don't always, I, even though textbooks try to be up to date, uh, you know, information changes so rapidly by the time the textbook comes out, uh, another trial may have occurred or something else may have changed that uh, negates what's in the textbook. So how do you actually keep track of these trials? Because that's actually something I've been recently curious about, where a lot of times attendings have some sort of knowledge about clinical trials that are going on. And I know there are some public resources, but some people tend to know these things even in advance of what gets put out there. And, you know, what resources do you, do you use to figure that out? I think uh, most people tend to know their own field, so especially if they're doing research in it. I think that, for example, if I were to design a new trial, one place that I would go would be clinicaltrials.gov because nowadays everyone has to register their clinical trials online so you can see what trials are ongoing. And also, researchers tend to go to the same meetings and you talk to the same people so you know if somebody's engaged in a trial. Um, and people who are doing a trial, just like writing a textbook, it takes a really long time. You have to come up with a protocol. You have to publish it on clinicaltrials.gov. You have to get IRB approval. You have to, you know, get funding. And then, but again, it takes a long time to get a trial up and running. So people talk about it, or uh, especially if it's a multi-center trial, then they may have approached you about joining because... Um, People tend to know, again, everybody else who's in the field. Also, I get a lot of my data about trials that uh, maybe aren't so much in my field off of social media. So I follow people who like to tweet about uh, relevant new articles or new trials in, in my field. So, for example, one of my colleagues, Brian Cotton, tends to retweet a lot of articles about what's going on in trauma and critical care, usually with a comment or two. Um, but nonetheless, you know, so you pay attention to what certain people tweet and what articles they're reading and 
I also follow major journals on Twitter. So like New England Journal of Medicine or uh, JAMA or Lancet. So you follow the journals on, on Twitter. And if there's a lot of press about one uh, and it's related to something that I'm clinically interested in, I will pay attention to it. Uh, and then lastly, major meetings, t- big trials uh, in our field tend to come out at major meetings. So, so I hear about them that way also. And then there's just some classics that as attendings repeat over and over again. And uh, I think that uh, that may just depend on being exposed over time to that attending and what uh, what their interests are. As uh, unacademic as it may sound, I, I have to agree with you. Twitter and being involved on Twitter in the surgical community, I'm much more up to date with uh, trials between Twitter and different podcasts than I have ever been, you know, getting the journals in the mail. So there's certainly a lot to say about that. Absolutely. And most journals nowadays are, realize that people no longer, you know, op- get a journal in the mail, open it, read it cover to cover, you know. People get an email that has an electronic table of contents, and if something strikes their fancy, they click on it and they open it. Or I get emails, I get an email on critical care articles that have come out in the past week, and I skim it to see if there's anything I'm interested in, and if not, I delete it. And so I think that Twitter, uh, emails, even press, you know, obviously there's alt metrics, which are the alternative metrics that are used. to track how what the impact is of a journal article, and that includes did someone blog about it? Did they retweet the URL for the abstract? Did they did someone write an article about it, and et cetera? So obviously nowadays there are a lot more ways to disseminate one's work, and so um, you could read about a trial in the news even. Along those lines of the alt metrics, we recently in our APSA 50th anniversary coverage um, talked to Dr. Alan Goldstein and Dr. Todd Ponsky about alt metrics and social media and how they are integrating into academic medicine. I was curious about your perspective on that. Obviously, there's a lot of trepidation, hesitation on fully embracing this as a new way to measure for academic promotion, but just in general, as far as disseminating uh, research work and getting a wider audience, is do you, do you see the advantages to this, or are you also on the side of being more hesitant? Yeah, I think I'm biased because I am a pro-social media person. I'm, as I think you know, the social media editor for JAX. Obviously, I think that social media is important. I personally think social media is a great way to uh, disseminate information. It's a great way to get feedback even. I've seen people ask for feedback on uh, Twitter. I think that uh, it's a great way to virtually attend meetings. So, you know, I I may not attend a meeting, but if you follow certain people, you may uh, still hear what the major findings were at that meeting. Uh, And I think that's a great way to keep up to date without actually having to go to every single meeting. And as I mentioned before, I think there are some people who are very good about promoting their work. I think there's a fine line as far as how self-promoting to be, but I think that, you know, certainly it expands the reach in a shorter period of time of of your work. And there is some data that suggests that, for example, tweetations or how many times your abstract has been tweeted uh, corresponds to subsequent 
um, citations. And I think it remains to be seen whether that's a valid academic metric that can be used for promotion. I don't think it would be used in and of itself or to replace conventional metrics, but I think for more junior folks that it, where it takes a long time to actually get citations and the H index, you know, it may be a reflection at least of how broadly their work is being read uh, in the short term. I see that your research interest has been a lot about healthcare disparities. And like you mentioned, just like the trials, this is something that's, you know, evolving. Do you or did you include topics like healthcare disparities in this new textbook? Or do you see that these would be included in future editions? And my other question for you was, uh, what kind of new topics will we be uh, seeing in this textbook? Dr. Brunicardi is the genius between, uh, behind the new topics in this edition of Schwartz, and he's a big fan, uh, if you know him at all, about of personalized medicine, and so I think there's at least one new chapter on that. As I mentioned, we included a chapter on web-based education. There are also um, new chapters that have to do more with safety and quality. I think there there were chapters before. I'm trying to remember the exact new chapters. I don't recall one exactly on disparities, but again, I came a little late to this edition, so I was not involved in the initial planning of the new chapters. Um, as mentioned before, though, I think diversity and uh, slightly different topic because it's not disparities, but I think diversity and inclusion is an important topic, um, even in academics nowadays. And in my other, wearing my other hat as one of the co-editors of the Success in Academic Surgery series, um, we're actually writing an entire book on diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity. So uh, certainly, I think that's something that we're going to see more of. Uh, so now we're going to dive into our tips and tricks and. For this, we're going to talk about reviewing a journal article. Uh, for our younger and less experienced listeners that may not be familiar with the process that goes into this, so can you just break us down into you know what goes into reviewing an article? Uh, what is the role of the the mentored reviews? How do you get involved doing this? And uh, what are the journal's expectations of you? Absolutely. So just in terms of a general overview, maybe not so much for a trainee. Depending on the journal, the journal will um, send out invitations to anywhere from two to five potential reviewers looking for acceptances, and then and then give you a certain amount of time to complete the review. They will send you the manuscript, and each journal has a different template for how they want you to provide the review. Um, most will have a series of questions, so depending on the journal, it might say ask you to rank uh, the journal or, or the journal article, let's say from zero to 100, or they might ask you to rank a series of criteria like um, were the methods described clearly and then give you a Likert scale or were the statistical methods appropriate. Some journals will ask you, um, does the paper need a statistical review, yes or no? And then pretty much all journals ask you to have comments to the author, and then there are confidential comments to the editor. Uh, and then they will ask you to provide an overview uh, or an overall summary, such as recommend to accept or 
except with minor revision, no re-review, except with um, revi major revisions, need to re-review, et cetera. So depending on the journal, they may have different categories. So then the journal will not always get back. <laughs> if they send out five invitations, they don't always get back five positive responses. So obviously most journals try to get a couple people to review each article so that it's not just one person's opinion. And then it's the job usually of either an editor or an associate editor to look at all the reviews once they're back and to try to come up with a summary recommendation. And sometimes p reviewers don't agree at all. And sometimes it's very uniform that they all have the, a very similar opinion. So as far as mentored reviews, so I can tell you that JAXA or Journal of the American College of Surgeons has a mentor mentored review program. And that is actually through the Resident and Associates Program uh, Society, RAS, and the Communication Committee. So people through that committee have volunteered to do reviews. They list in a couple areas of expertise or topics that they're interested in reviewing for. So, for example, someone might say, I would like to review trauma, or I'd like to review surgical education, or someone might say, I wish to review health outcomes research. And then the, uh, the editors will um, assign the articles based on topic. And then usually myself or um, there are a couple other people on the editorial board that will review the same article and then will give feedback on the review. For the most part, I've been extremely impressed with the reviews that uh, residents and fellows have done um, and in fact find them often much more thoughtful and um, exhaustive in terms of having, you know, a, a, a lengthy description of the article and critiques. I've thought they've been right on and for the most part have been excellent. And as far as I know, Dr. Eberlein, at least for Jax, counts the mentee's review as uh, pretty similar to any other reviewer. So um, when I've given feedback I typically, as I mentioned, it's all actually people have done a great job, but uh, sometimes I just give some suggestions. So, okay, well, I, I would say my first piece of advice is to be nice. So I think you need to remember that uh, how much work goes into writing a paper and think how you feel when you get rejected. So I would advise anyone doing a review not to say something they wouldn't say if they weren't anonymous or if they were talking to the person about their paper. Um, and in fact, some journals will ask you if you want to reveal your name, and some journals are not anonymous in their reviews. Uh, though most surgical journals nowadays, I think, are still anonymous, but I have I've clicked the box where it says, okay, to let the author see my name. If you feel like you would write something different if the author saw your name, then I think you might want to think about your style. So that'd be one thing. Another piece of advice that I would give is you don't want to lead people on. So when I read a paper and I review it, and I if I think that the paper has at least one fatal flaw that makes it not publishable, then I reject it. I feel as though if you say revise with major, uh, you know, revise major revisions, that gives the author hope that uh, there's something they can do to make the paper good enough to be published. And I do think there's sometimes it's hard to tell 
but I feel like once you've had one revision submitted that uh, I personally have uh, always felt kind of led on if I've done two or three revisions and then the journal rejects the paper because <laughs> I feel as though, uh, you know, that you've been sort of led to think it's going to get accepted if you keep going through the revisions and in good faith follow all the suggestions that are given to you. So I also think I heard once in a panel someone give the advice not to critique an article on something that is clearly outside the scope of the paper. Um, so, for example, saying this paper would be much better if it had examined this other question using this other data set. I mean, clearly, it, that may be true, but clearly the authors aren't going to go and do another study to fix this paper using another data set using a totally different design. So you don't want to um, wish for things that aren't really feasible. I'd also say I think it's great that some people are very thorough in their reviews, but I think there's a fine line between giving feedback that's going to make the paper better and stronger versus nitpicking. You know, I've seen reviews that have 30 different lines of critiques where it says use this word instead of this word in this line. Um, I think that's, uh, as I mentioned, there's doing a thorough review and then there's nitpicking. And then probably lastly, I would just say that uh, try to offer actionable critiques rather than just criticism. So I read a review recently and the reviewer had great comments um, and, you know, said, you know, made a comment about something and then there was no real action. So you could say this is a limitation of the paper. Perhaps the author could discuss it in the, in the you know, in the discussion section. So it's not just saying there's a problem with your paper, period. You know, the author should mention this as a limitation or the author should discuss this or in the methods, the author should describe why he or she did not choose to do this design or have a better rationale for doing the study this way. Um, so there should be something actionable that comes from the critiques. So those are just a few suggestions yeah. that I have. Those are uh, highly uh, valuable pieces of information. We appreciate that. So if, if our residents out there that are listening uh, want to get involved in this mentored review program, they can talk to, they get involved with the RAS ACS. Is that the, the way they go about that? Yeah, absolutely. That would be one way for Jax. I don't, I'm not that familiar with all the other journals about how they would do it. I think it never hurts. You could always send your CV to the editors and right. say, hey, I would love to review. Another way that residents can practice, but perhaps won't get credit is, you know, I know some residents will review a paper that their mentor has been asked to review, and then the mentor will review it with them but they just won't get explicit credit. So I think the nice thing about the JAXA program is that the mentee actually gets credit for the review. When was the first paper you reviewed? Were you a residency, fellowship, post-fellowship? I was faculty and I reviewed a basic science paper and I'm not a basic scientist and I must have spent hours <laughs> reviewing <laughs> that paper, trying, trying to make sure I wasn't going to say anything wrong, trying to understand the technique, uh, reading all the person's other paper, reading all the references in the reference list. So it, it was, I took it very seriously. <laughs> it took a long say, time. Would you say over time that you have become, you've given more uh, rejections without, you know, resubmission than before? Are you getting easier, harder as time goes on? I try to adjust based on partly on the journal, partly on uh, whether the topic's an important one or not. So part of the consideration is this 
adding anything to the literature. I think that I'm actually pretty nice. You know, as someone who's had plenty of papers rejected personally, it's um, it's always hard to be rejected. So I think, uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure that our journals are producing or publishing high quality work. And in general, I think research is is getting better nowadays. There's, you know, particularly health services and clinical research uh, is really, the field has really advanced so much that uh, I read papers and sometimes I'm very hard pressed to find problems with them. You know, it just depends. I I, I have no problem saying if the papers uh, shouldn't be published. That was really fantastic advice. And uh, Kevin, actually, Dr. Cow uh, did my first mentored review, so I've only done one as a resident, but uh, Dr. Cow gave me similar advice. So moving into our final five, we just have a, a few questions that are not necessarily medically related to, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So our first question for you is, what book are you currently reading and what what is your kind of all-time favorite or your uh, recommendation that all of our listeners has to read? I'm reading a book that I found at the airport on how to get shit done <laughs> because I want to know how to be more productive, but uh, I, I've only gotten through the first chapter, so I guess it's not working yet. <laughs> it seems like you could have written that book, if you ask me. But. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, in the first chapter, it makes a very interesting point, which is that just because you have a long checklist of things to do doesn't mean you're being productive. You know, I've read other books about how you have to do less to do more, which I think is very important. What's the best book I've ever read or the book that everyone should read? I think, uh, you know, we just, uh, one of our chief residents just uh, gave a grand round about the book Grit. I thought that was an excellent book. And uh, she made some very relevant comparisons about uh, grit and uh, surgical residency and how we can nourish grit in our residents and how we all have to have grit to get through our jobs. Yeah, I think that might be a good current book to read. I know Dr. Steele was very sad to not be able to make this podcast. He's at the Ascars right now and very busy there. But, um, you know, we have to at least bring him up once as you guys are good friends uh, back in residency. But talking about a to-do list and, and talking about publishing book timelines, I've written a few chapters with him. And he takes a lot of pride in being the first one to submit his book chapters. It, have you ever met anyone that gets book chapters in before Dr. Steele? <laughs> oh, what a challenging question. He is pretty quick. I would say that he's probably, I, I don't, I can't think of anyone offhand. <laughs> he, he, a lot of times he'll reply all to the entire list of authors. Here's my chapter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think next time I'm going to, that I'm invited to a book, to write a book chapter and Dr. Steele is also invited. I'm just going to reply all that I'm done, even though I'm not. <laughs> just to see what he would say. <laughs> Our next question for you. We hear that you are uh, a concert grade pianist. Uh, do you listen to music in the OR and what would we find on your music playlist? I'm definitely not a concert pianist. I like to listen to everything except for uh, Christian rock and elevator music. <laughs> and uh, I I used to say that I listened to the 80s or 90s music until a trainee said, oh, the oldies, they're so great. <laughs> I said, no, they're not the oldies. <laughs> so, 
I think uh, what's becoming the good old, the oldies is changing over time. But I listen to, uh, I let the residents pick. I'm pretty uh, flexible. Great. We also hear that you're a kickboxer. Um, one of our questions we like to ask, if you were to compete in the Olympics, winter or summer, what event would you want to do? It doesn't actually have to be a sport that you play currently. <laughs> in high school, I was a complete geek, and I used to say that uh, I used my brain instead of my athletic prowess, which I didn't have any, so... I was a mathlete back in the day, <laughs> so <laughs> I would probably stick to the cerebral activities. Um, and the only reason I kickbox for exercise is my trainer doesn't hit me back, <laughs> so it makes it a lot easier to kickbox. And uh, you know that's how you get out your frustrations uh, from the days. Uh, if you have something to hit and no one's going to hit you back, then pretty good way to get out your aggression. <laughs> Good to know. So speaking of relaxing, getting out aggression, uh, where's your favorite spot for vacationing? My favorite spot for vacationing? I like to go to new places. I don't have a real favorite spot. <laughs> Actually, my favorite spot would probably be just to sit at home in my backyard with my two dogs and uh, watch them run around uh, the yard. That's my favorite spot currently at the end of the day is to sit outside and throw the ball with the dogs. Look at what kind of dogs do you have? I have a lab mix who's 15, and I have a almost two-year-old French bulldog. They're quite the pair. <laughs> Adorable. The French bulldog's pretty much the, the boss. He, he runs the household. <laughs> and he's only two, so I can imagine that. <laughs> Yes, that's awesome. Our final question for you, what would you be doing if not medicine? Gosh, uh, excellent question. I, I think probably something related to teaching. I think that uh, that's what draws me to academics and uh, being in an academic institution is uh, that it's really, uh, that's one of the most satisfying parts of the job is uh, training the next generation and you know, you can write a whole bunch of papers or publish a bunch of books, and um, but really the lasting, you, your lasting legacy is really all the people you train, and then they go on to train other people. And, you know, it, there's nothing that's more satisfying than seeing someone that you've trained be successful. And, you know, I go to these meetings and I ask people what year resident they are now, and they tell me they're full professor. Like, oh, my God, am I that old? <laughs> yeah. That's really what sticks around. Well, Every book has a new edition, at, you know, at the next. Yeah. Anyway, like we're already on the 11th edition of Schwartz. You know, the, each book only lasts so long, but, but the training you give people lasts a lifetime. And, and Dr. Cow, I think you have mentored us uh, remotely through this podcast. So uh, thank you for all you do. We learn so much <laughs> every time we talk to you, um, your wealth of knowledge and uh, we, we learned a lot today. So thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thank you for having me. Say hi to Dr. Steele. Until next time, dominate the day.